This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, September 12, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The President and Congress appear to want to have it both ways on the situation in Iraq. The Islamic State, they say, is a massive threat, but they'll fight that threat on the cheap. And whether or not the President has the authority to take the country to war all by himself, no one seems really interested in stopping him. Justin Logan is director of the Cato Institute's Foreign Policy Studies. He comments. Well, the president actually has been less than clear on this issue. One of the things that I think has been missing from the debate, um, despite the gruesome beheadings of, of James Foley and, and Stephen Sotloff, is that the president of the United States, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, the head of the National Counterterrorism Center, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI – have all said that they have no intelligence regarding the Islamic State or ISIS or ISIL, whichever acronym you care to use, targeting the United States here at home, right? So they've already killed two hostages, two American hostages, by beheading them. Um, And that, in my view, requires some response. But it's very noteworthy that we have now embarked on uh, a third Iraq war in pursuit of a group of people who are – offend me on just about every possible level from the sort of basic human level to the theological to the sartorial, uh, just about anything you can think of, um, but do not appear to be targeting the United States according to the people in the U.S. government who are responsible for assessing threats to the United States. to the extent we get involved in the war that's taking place across the Iraq-Syria border, uh, does that decision have any effect on their plans about attacking the United States? Does it make them more or less likely to attack the U.S.? And I think that's been totally missing the intelligence assessments, which are unanimous, really, um, that these guys don't have uh, the means and opportunity to hit us here. Um, again, I think that some sort of just to be totally blunt about it, punishment uh, for beheading two Americans is required in basically all circumstances. Um, But that punishment ought not to include trying to fix Iraq's and now Syria's politics, which are the underlying problem here, right? These guys didn't just emerge from the ether. They didn't, you know, spring from the head of some demon somewhere. Uh, They are the latest manifestation of the political pathologies that produced, among other things, a Sunni insurgency in Iraq when the United States had between 150 and 200,000 ground troops in the country. Um, And I think political pathologies that will remain whatever military violence is meted out onto the Islamic State. So we have a tendency – there's this trite trope that is true nonetheless that when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and we have really good military power. And so we say, you know, there's this problem out there. We'll use our military to deal with it. And it's a weirdly sort of anti-Klauswitzian, anti-political view of war. These guys are a symptom of a more deep underlying set of problems, not just Sunni dissatisfaction with the regime in Baghdad, not just uh, the the brutal civil war that's been raging in Syria for years, but also including a sort of cold war that's happening throughout the region between the Gulf Arabs led in particular by Saudi Arabia and Qatar on the one hand and Iran on the other. Uh, with Bashar Assad as a junior partner to Iran in that. So I think we, what we don't have a good handle on are the, the solutions for the political problems. And I think that 
I guess to be a little bit on the bright side, there seems to be a considerable recognition of this. If you've read newspaper stories over the past week about what the president said, you've heard a lot of analysts for once, not just from the Cato Institute, remarking at the incoherence of the president's strategy, the failure of the president's strategy to grapple with the underlying politics that are causing the problem. So I think people are hearing a little bit more supple and nuanced analysis of what's going on, but it doesn't seem to have dented the president's uh, inertia at all. In the past week, has there been any uh, suggestion of what the United States expects to get out of it? Well, the president, you know, perversely, really, um, has basically said he's going to hand this off to the next president. Um, we had anonymous leaks in the New York Times uh, in which they said that it would have a sort of three-part uh, three strategy, really, and the president added a fourth um, in his speech. But they basically said, look, we're going to uh, be the Air Force uh, for people who are fighting with ISIS and bomb them uh, to deliver a military blow. And obviously, that's already started, um, started before the president's speech. Um, and then the second piece was going to be a very new and innovative approach, training and equipping the Iraqi army uh, and some Syrian rebel forces, which we did for basically the past decade. Um, and the great denouement of that train and equip mission was when confronted with bad guys from the Islamic State, large numbers of Iraqi security forces abandoned the weapons we gave them, which swiftly were captured by the Islamic State. Uh, and the training that we gave them evidently did not impress on them the sort of number one uh, military principle, don't desert, uh, because they just didn't really want to fight. They didn't know what they were fighting for. And so I think you know that second prong of the mission, the train and equip, is really dubious. And then they've basically explicitly said to the New York Times on background um, that the other thing that they need to do is to figure out what to do in Syria and basically said flat out, we're not going to be able to get there when we're in office and that'll be for the next president to, to take up. So it's really, I think, irresponsible uh, in one reading of what the president and his people are up to is basically responding to what I think is a legitimate and understandable public outcry that, again, there needs to be some penalty for beheading an American to say nothing of two Americans. Um, and so there's this sort of chesty rhetoric and speech uh, about how we're going to destroy this group without an intention of actually trying to do that. Uh, the president has, has made these sorts of you know, table-pounding proclamations before and then sort of silently uh, left the room. And so that may be what's going on here, but if they mean what they say, um, on the one hand, amplifying the threat from this group, it, they're admitting that they're not targeting the United States, but if unchecked, some uh, underspecified things will happen to the region, which will hurt the United States. But saying at the same time, but it's not going to be costly. We're not going to put in ground troops. We don't care about it that much. Well, look, if it's a great big threat uh, and you're heading off the next 9-11 or preventing the caliphate from capturing Ras Tanura in Saudi Arabia and becoming a market maker in oil or some you know, Rube Goldberg story that ends in, in tears – then put in ground troops if you have to. You know, I mean, that's that's saying at the outset, we're only going to pursue this war with very limited costs cuts away at the idea that it's a big problem you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a big problem, you go in, you fight, 
and you use what's necessary to win. So I think that the rhetoric about the threat is really in tension with the rhetoric about the costs that the administration is willing to incur to deal with it. The president has said in his speech, and he's said it elsewhere in other contexts uh, with respect to Syria and Libya, I have the authority to undertake whatever I need to undertake to deal with this problem, insert country here. Uh, but I welcome Congress's support. Now, former Bush administration legal advisors and uh, Bruce Ackerman uh, have said the president has clearly crossed a line here. Has he, has he clearly crossed a line here in this instance? Well, this is all hope and change, Caleb. You've got to see. Uh, you know, this, is, this is what happens when you put a University of Chicago lecturer in law constitutional law in the White House. Uh, you know, I'm being ironic there, but that was essentially what candidate Obama promised in the interview with Charlie Savage uh, about his view of executive power on war. And lo and behold, like his legal advisor, Harold Coe, who was renowned to be a very liberal, very critical of this idea of plenary executive authority in terms of war making turned 180 degrees and discovered that once they were in possession of these powers, uh, there were in fact good legal reasons to justify their having these powers. And so it's really – I'm a pretty cynical guy in case that's not clear and it's enough to make even me wonder whether I've been cynical enough all along um, because the president is – I mean, give John Yu points for candor or give, you know, Eric Posner. They have a view of executive power that is sort of uh, unapologetic and not cute. Uh, it's, it's, it's very forthright and very direct. And what the Obama people have done is try to convince people that they agree with the critiques of those sweeping theories of executive power. Uh, but – in practice, they hold those same powers that the Posners and Vermeules and use uh, of the world think that they have. So the president's been flopping around saying, uh, you know, the, the, the war is justified on the basis of the AUMF uh, that happened a couple days after 9-11. Then he said, no, 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 no. It's about the, the Iraq war resolution. They've now come up with the um, interesting theory that – uh, the Islamic State is now somehow the inheritor of al-Qaeda's uh, uh, place in the AUMF. So they're really just tying themselves in knots to convince the public and probably themselves that they have good legal justification for what they're doing. Um, and look, the same dynamic that's playing out between Congress and the executive now always plays out between Congress and the executive. The Obama administration is saying what we're doing is in keeping with the War Powers Resolution, which to your and my ear might sound like uh, they believe that they're bound by the War Powers Resolution, but that's the exact opposite of what it means. They mean they're behaving in the spirit of it, but they do not recognize being constrained by it in any legal way. Um, and further, you heard a Republican congressman who, to his credit, wants to have a vote in Congress and thinks there ought to be a vote in Congress, say that many of his Republican colleagues were all too happy not to have such a vote because the options left to them in the absence of a vote were, number one, if things go terribly wrong, disavow any uh, responsibility for the policy. And number two, if the policy turns out to be a smashing, low-cost success, they can admonish the president for not having done more sooner and assure the public that they would have. So again, cynicism is really the order of the day, uh, unfortunately. 
Justin Logan is director of the Cato Institute's Foreign Policy Studies. You can read more of his work on Iraq at our website, cato.org.